Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thanks for joining us for the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. The 11th edition of the ITE Trip Generation Manual is out, and today we're going to discuss what's new in the publication. To do that, we have two of the folks responsible for putting it together. Lisa Fontana Tierney, Traffic Engineering Senior Director for ITE, and Kevin Hooper, who is responsible for all trip generation and parking generation projects for ITE. Lisa, Kevin, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Thanks, Bernie. Great to be here. Well, why don't we start off with a very basic question for those who might not be familiar with the ITE Trip Generation Manual. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What is it? What is its purpose? Why was it created? Trip Generation really is a staple product of ITE and has been for many, many years. Um, It is a tool that's used primarily by transportation professionals, but also can be used by members of the general public, lawyers, developers, all sorts of uh, different professionals can actually use this tool. Basically, in a nutshell, it provides information for people on how many trips come and go to different types of land uses. So we have about 174 land uses, I think, right now. And this book will give you an estimate of about how much traffic, either persons, vehicles, pedestrians, bicycles, um, all modes, it'll give you an estimate of how many people will be coming and going to those sites. Um, This information is important if you're trying to plan a site um, so that you know how much access needs to be provided. You may need to use the information to time signals properly, how wide roadways should be, and all sorts of other elements. That's kind of in a nutshell how it's being used across our profession. And like I said, also sometimes even the general public is curious and interested in this. Lisa, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is the 11th edition of the ITE Trip Generation Manual that was recently released. Tell me a bit more about it. What are some of the things that have changed in this edition from the 10th edition? A lot, actually, I'll say. Um, ITE does update this manual about every four years or so, and it has been about four years since the last edition. As you mentioned, we're already in the 11th edition. Seems like time is flying. About four years is generally enough time to collect enough data that some of the land uses, their um, generation rates actually change, and also allows us time to document some new land uses, uh, emerging land uses that may come out every four years or so. We've been able to collect some data, and we include new chip generation information for new land uses. Um, This time, we were met with a bit of a challenge with the pandemic. I would like to make clear to all of our listeners that Actually, we have not included any data at all that has been collected after the pandemic started. We don't feel that that information is valid, along with all the historical information that we have. So it's handled kind of differently, and Kevin will talk a little bit about that. So this time, as I mentioned, uh, the data does not include any of the COVID information. So instead, we had a a different focus. Uh, We kind of looked at the individual land use classifications that we've had for many, many years, and we've looked at the feedback that we've received from a number of the users where possible clarifications, reclassifications, um, ways of arranging the data slightly differently might help our users use our data better. So we do have some new land uses, some new data, but also I think the vast improvement in the 11th edition really centers around being able to use the data slightly differently than we have been able to in the past. 
And I can give you a couple examples. Um, I think one of the big ones is the shopping center. It's probably the most widely used land use that we have in our book. And for many years, we've had questions, um, you know, shopping centers range from very small to very large type facilities. And we have a lot of times get questions, well, you know, your land use is based on these really big regional shopping malls. How can I apply it to a very small shopping center? And, you know, you can look at the curve and the data and you can make some assumptions. But this time, um, we've actually decided to stratify the shopping center land use into three different categories. Um, we have what's still called shopping center for those facilities that are 150,000 square feet or greater. And then we have an intermediate size shopping plaza, as we're calling it, that ranges from 40 to 150,000 square feet. So in the third category for the smaller shopping centers is the strip retail plaza. And that's for shopping centers that are 40,000 square feet and less. And we think that having these three classifications will really help our users apply the data uh, more specifically to the situation that they're looking to try to apply it. Um, the other thing I'll mention with the shopping centers, um, we also have taken a little bit closer look at some of the components of the shopping centers. For example, um, when we're looking at the plazas, um, we found that there's a very strong correlation to if there's a supermarket or not within the plaza. And so now we have a way of you actually analyzing it with and without supermarkets, depending on what your study might be um, involved with. This will give you a little better chance to examine further and put something more appropriate. So another significant change in the 11th edition was an adjustment that we made to the land uses related to convenience markets uh, with gasoline pumps. In the past, we had two different land uses, one that was convenience market with gasoline pumps, and then we had one that was a gas station with a convenience market. They were very similar, but they were differentiated just by which one had the primary business. For example, the convenience market with gasoline station the primary business was convenience market, and the other way around, the gasoline station was the primary business in it. So that led to some confusion with folks. They didn't really know what the primary business was. So uh, we took some time this time to really look closer at that land use, and we were able to develop a single land use instead of two of them that has two different independent variables. So you can actually go in and look at the land use and identify the number of gasoline pumps that there are and the size of the convenience market. So you have a better way of actually getting one number based both attributes of the land use. I think that'll simplify things a lot for users. Um, a few other minor revisions that we made, the number of floors, the thresholds for multifamily housing has been added. I think that has been revised, I should say, and I think that'll help our users. And we've also added a number of things that help you classify the data better. For example, we've added proximity to rail stations for several of the land uses. So if you're trying to estimate and you know that you're really close to a rail station, it'll definitely impact your trip generation estimates. So we've added that as a factor where you can now indicate how close you are to a rail station for a number of the land uses, and it'll adjust the trips basically for you based on how far you are from the rail stations. So those are the main updates. And just, um, I did mention that we always do like to add at least a few new land uses, even though the focus of this update was more on different classifications. Um, there are four main land uses that have been um, added to the trip generation manual. The single family attached housing has been added to the a database, and that'll cover things like duplexes, townhouses, and row houses. Oftentimes, we get questions, I know, on duplexes, and we never really had a good answer for them. So now there is a land use category specifically for single-family attached housing. 
Um, we've also added a land use, a marijuana cultivation and processing facility, that's a new land use. And I know there's been enough discussion with people asking that's an emerging land use. The casino land use has been broadened significantly. And I think that's going to be a big benefit to our members as well. In the past, we've only had very small video lottery casino types, and now we've broadened it to some of the, the more expanded full-service casinos are now included in that land use. And then the last one is a brewery tap room. That's, of course, important for everyone to know how many trips our breweries are going to be generating in our neighborhoods. We did publish an article in the October issue of the ITE Journal, which is available on our website, and it goes through even more detail than I did. You can learn more about it. One of the things that some folks I'm certain are aware of, but others may not be, is that there's also a web app that's available for the trip generation manual. Tell us a little bit about that web app, if you would, Lisa, and tell us some of the benefits it provides over simply using the hard copy version of the trip manual. In my opinion, the web app um, has very significant benefits over just using the hard copy. We did release the web app for the first time with the 10th edition. So this will be the second edition that does have the web app. And we found very significant benefits and more and more people are starting to use it as I get calls and questions. Um, Definitely, there's been a shift in folks. I think um, the primary thing that I find the benefit and when I use it myself is it's just really easy to use. Um, The trip generation manual has grown and grown, and most of our users know we have thousands of pages now, and the app really simplifies it. You just need to go in, use the land use code, you select a setting type, a time period, and then an independent variable, which is kind of the measure that you're using, like how big it is, for example, and it just pulls up exactly the plot you need. You don't need to shuffle through any pages. It gives the exact same plot as the hard copy would but it's all just right there at your fingertips. You can click on a button that gives you the land use description, gives you the plots for the whole land use. Um, It's very convenient and just easy, I think, to find things. And it's just a very simple format. You don't have to be a professional IT person in order to use it, which I appreciate. Um, Another really important benefit, I think, is, and this is a benefit that only people with the app can have. The hard copy users don't have this benefit, and that is the ability to filter the data. So uh, we do have a function in there where you can just push a button and it allows you to geographically sort the data. You can put just United States data, just Canadian data, or you can choose from within six different regions across the country. You can sort if you just want East Coast data, you can have just East Coast data. Uh, You can also sort on the range of years. The database goes back to 1980. So you can pick a decade, you can pick just the last five years, any kind of range of data. And again, I think that's really helpful to users to be able to pull some of these land uses have changed quite a bit over time. And you can pull just the most recent information if you wish. And the last thing that you can sort on is kind of a range of the independent variables. So for example, if you're looking at shopping centers and you just want to look at ones that are greater than 200,000, you can put in the range 200,000 and greater, and it'll give you a whole set of statistics and information just in a view of all of those that are just larger. If you know you have one that's much larger than the average one, you can just look at just that subset of data. Um, so I think those are all really important features. So all those features were actually available back in the 10th edition. Um, and I will mention the 11th edition, we've improved the app to give one extra benefit. And that is um, we are now able to let our users access all of the information um, that we've previously provided in electronic form that's related to trip generation. So for example, we have a desk reference that tells you how to use it. Right now, it's just one click away. It's right inside the app. You also have access to all the pass-by trip generation information, truck trip generation. Uh, we have tables with hourly distribution that shows like how a land use will generate trips by hour of the day. 
And the last thing, which I think is important, as we move into the 11th edition, some folks still want in, um, access to the 10th edition, as some of their studies are still using the older data. We have now incorporated a PDF of the entire 10th edition within the app. So you can go right back and find any of the information that you were looking for from the past edition right from within um, the current app. So I think those are, um, you know, some really good benefits to using it. Um, we do have a webinar that was produced. It is available. It's free of charge. It's on the ITE website. If you listen to the webinar, you're actually able to see a demonstration of some of the capabilities of the web app. I think it gives you a nice little quick tutorial. If you just go through the ITE Learning Hub, you're able to find the webinar that was produced on October 19th. And again, it's free download for anybody who's interested in kind of learning a little bit more about chip generation and how you might use the app. Kevin, one of the things Lisa had mentioned was that this latest edition of the Trip Generation Manual doesn't really take in COVID as one of the factors. But obviously, the pandemic has had some significant impacts on trip making, trip characteristics, trip generation rates, etc. What can you tell our listeners about these impacts, those that might be temporary and others which may be more long-lasting? And how can transportation professionals incorporate these impacts into their work? And so let me start with the immediate effect of the pandemic on what I think many of your listeners are probably familiar with as commuting to work for many white collar or similar jobs. Work from home has become the only option or became the only option for many early on in the pandemic. Even today, 18 months or so in, the proportion of the overall labor force that's permitted to work from home and that chooses to work from home, that's two different things, uh, is higher than it was pre-pandemic. In the long term, I expect that work from home will remain high, higher than pre-pandemic. Uh, the result will be a reduction in trips generated at residential land uses, single family, multifamily, et cetera, during our traditional peak commuting periods or during the rush hour. So the rush hour should be, we should have fewer trips. But at the same time, because there's a greater proportion or a greater number of people working from home, the number of midday or off-peak hour trips is going up, has gone up as we've seen over the past year or so. And I expect that the long term is going to continue to grow as those individuals working from home are available to make other trips like for childcare, for school transport, for shopping on medical trips, et cetera. At the other end of that work trip is the general office building. Trips generated at a typical office building have decreased since the pandemic onset uh, as the number of persons physically working at that office and, and also the number of visitors at the office uh, have likewise decreased. Will that immediate term decrease continue in the long run? Well, I tell you, tenants don't like to pay for unused or underutilized space. Yes, office tenants may modify how they use their space. I know there's plenty of employers now who have shared space for people who, for employees who work fewer than five days a week. But I expect many will choose to consolidate their office space. I think we've heard that either by shrinking uh, as their leases expire or by consolidating operations in fewer locations or in smaller spaces. I expect that ultimately office building is going to fill back up with people, maybe more tenants, maybe smaller tenants, but ultimately the number of uh, vehicle trips to and from general office buildings will start to rebound and approach pre-pandemic conditions, but I doubt that they'll reach there. Now that magnitude we're going to talk about in a few minutes. I think all of us have experienced an increased reliance on e-commerce have either used it ourselves or have observed it. That has reduced the number of customer trips to brick and mortar retail stores. Now, that reduction was accelerated by the pandemic. It was there before. It's been going on and will continue long into the future. And our shift to greater reliance on e-commerce and on delivery services 
on the industrial end, on the warehouse end, has resulted in increased numbers of trips at those uses. As another example, restaurants have expanded dining spaces outdoors into on-street or off-street parking spaces, on the patios, sidewalks, on even closed streets. The numbers of carryout trips at restaurants have significantly increased over what they were pre-pandemic. Where we end up, that's a, that's a good question. In the long run, I think a successful restaurant will likely generate a comparable number of customer trips as they were pre-pandemic. But again, the sizes and the spaces and the number of seats at restaurants is certainly going to vary. And those are just a few examples, Bernie, of what I expect to be the most significant long-term pandemic effects. Now, one final critical point, I think, public agencies rely on and have trusted IT in our trip generation database because it represents actual field collected data. The message conveyed to me and Lisa from public reviewing agencies has been very clear historically uh, and certainly within the past year and a half. If IT thinks post-COVID trip gen rates are different from pre-COVID rates, then prove it. And we intend to. We intend to investigate and analyze and eventually report our findings. We're not going to wait four years, as Lisa mentioned, our typical turnaround on the trip generation manual updates is every four years. We're not going to wait four years until our next update to present our immediate post-COVID findings, uh, whether we find significant changes or no changes or relatively uh, insignificant changes. The web app that Lisa described earlier enables us to be quite nimble in how we release that updated information to subscribers. So to answer your question, we don't know yet. We will know soon, we hope, uh, and we'll report it, get it out to our uh, subscribers. Kevin, while you have your crystal ball out, I'll ask you another question that you may not be able to answer. But, you know, you talked about not waiting for the typical four-year interval for a new edition to come out, things of that sort. When do you think we'll have a better feel for how things are going to shake out for the long term with this? Any idea? It's a good question. It depends on the land use. On the residential side, on the trips to and from residential sites, I expect that we're probably close to where we're going to be in the, and I hate to even use the word long-term, if, if you used it, I apologize, over the next five-year period, we're probably about where we're going to be in terms of number of trips, person trips being generated by time of day uh, in residential uses. I think, think people who are, going, who are back to work in the office, that's probably stabilized close to where we're going to be. Modal shares is still very much up in the air. Transit ridership is down for a variety of reasons. One of the things that ITE also produces is the Transportation Impacts Analysis Recommended Practice. I understand that an updated version of that is being prepared. Can you tell us a bit more about what the updated version is going to contain and when folks will be able to review that? Sure, Bernie. I'm going to take go off on a little bit of a sidetrack. As Lisa described, the Trip Generation Manual presents lots of data, lots of data in what IT terms an information report. It's about 4,000 pages long, five volumes. It's quite intimidating, especially to the untrained eye. Guidance on how to evaluate, interpret, and apply that data are presented in what IT terms a recommended practice. It's titled the Trip Generation Handbook. As you mentioned, uh, IT will soon release this November a proposed recommended practice for the preparation and review of multimodal transportation impact analyses, TIAs, for site development, which grows upon the Trip Generation Handbook guidance. The TIA recommended practice provides guidance on appropriate, good, effective planning and design for site access, for on-site circulation, and for off-site improvements associated with development proposals. The TIA 
guidance addresses safety and mobility needs for all persons. Historically, even currently in many jurisdictions, if not most, the focus of TIA analysis has been on motorist mobility and safety using measures such as level of service, which I think some of your listeners are likely familiar with, which leads to the analysis to remove or minimize delay specifically for motorists with giving preferential evaluation priority to motorist needs. This RP, again, that's coming out in November, promotes the need to think of person trips or think in terms of person trips for consideration of pedestrians, walkers, for bicyclists, for transit users, even for, I'm going to use the word niche modes, uh, like scooters, ride hailing services, goods delivery, like for e-commerce. We have always worried, to go off on a tangent, we've always worried about curb space management for goods delivery, like for business delivery of goods. Uh, we still do. And we also have to consider goods delivery for personal e-commerce. And I don't just mean pizza delivery. Again, it's the ride hailing services, et cetera, at a variety of uses. These tools in the recommended practice encompass design features, operating practices, systems management policies. And the recommended practice also expands on the discussion of emerging and promising practices to incorporate approaches adopted by several jurisdictions to move beyond the focus on just motorists. As a couple of examples, vehicle miles of travel, which some of your listeners may have heard of, is currently being implemented in California as a better measure of the effects of a site development on the transportation system. Prorata share districts is another approach that has been used in a number of jurisdictions and has continued to grow. Prorata share district, a public agency, identifies the transportation system needs in a sub-area of its jurisdiction to accommodate the anticipated cumulative development in a developing area, in a developing sub-area, then develops some tools to allocate fiscal responsibilities for making improvements. Actually, I should have said it also identifies the improvements that are associated with that cumulative development, and then allocates fiscal responsibility to the property owners and to the public agency. And one last point, I know communities are hearing the need to focus on pedestrian, bicyclist, transit user, uh, et cetera, needs as well as that of motorists. This recommended practice is published as guidance and is not intended to supersede uh, local, regional, state level, in some cases, requirements. Those are, I know are in place uh, because they reflect local perspectives and policies on personal mobility and safety. But hopefully, after the public agencies have reviewed this recommended practice, they can modify their requirements to reflect the possibilities offered in the terms of multimodal analysis tools and analysis approaches. Lisa, to wrap up, for folks who are listening to this and would like to purchase the Trip Generation Manual, how might they go about doing that? Sure. Um, all the information is on our website. I would actually suggest going under Technical Resources and Trip and Parking Generation um, instead of just going directly to the bookstore because it does kind of lay out all the different options for purchasing. And we do offer multiple discounts if you are interested in getting multiple copies. So if you look on that website, you should be able to see all the information for ordering and they are shipping now. So certainly, you know, check it out. And if you have any questions, um, our publications, Sally Dollins, who works in our publications department, is real helpful in answering any questions. And all of her contact information is on the website as well. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both for being part of the podcast. We've been talking with Lisa Fontana Tierney. She is the Traffic Engineering Senior Director for ITE, as well as Kevin Hooper, who is responsible for all trip generation and parking generation projects for ITE. Lisa, Kevin, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Bernie. Our pleasure. Thanks, Bernie.